It's a hot afternoon in July 1979. Jeffrey McDonald is jogging around a track in Raleigh, North Carolina. It has been almost nine years since Dr. Jeffrey McDonald resigned from the Green Berets in order to build a new life. He says running is a means of forgetting his past, which still haunts him. It's a way of, I think, relieving some tension and anxiety. It's my way of relaxation. It's a lot of tension right now, so I'm running a little more than normal. Jeffson Raleigh to stand trial for the murders of his wife and two daughters nine years ago. But at least he's got a new friend to run with, the writer of his story, Joe McGinnis. I jogged with him around the track. I sat and drank a beer with him in the evening. I began liking him very much. It's summertime, so Jeff rented a fraternity house on a local college campus. Everyone's moved in together. Jeff's lawyers, their assistants, Jeff and Joe. Per their agreement, Joe would have access to every aspect of Jeff's defense. And one of the first things he got to see was this videotape. Uh, uh, Dr. McDonald, this is Dr. Kroger. And I do have your permission, do I not, to use hypnosis today? Yes, you do. In an attempt to get more details about what happened the night of the murders, Jeff's lawyer arranged for him to be hypnotized. And so what I'd like to do is to have you look at a spot directly above your forehead. At the count of three, you will close your lids. And after you close your lids, you will go into this nice, deep state of relaxation that we call hypnosis. One, two, three... Jeffrey McDonald was the best and the brightest. A golden boy, Ivy Leaguer, Green Beret. Back in 1970, his pregnant wife and their two daughters were brutally murdered in their army home. I never assaulted anyone in my life, and certainly not my wife and my two children. Why was he still alive and the family murdered the way it was? The six-month army investigation cleared Dr. McDonald. McDonald was indicted for the murders of his wife and his two young daughters. Uh, Mr. Joe McGinnis is the author of a best-selling book. It is the fruit of a great deception. This guy named Jeff McDonald was going to stand trial nine years before, and he thought, oh my God, this is a great story. There was a gleam in his eye. A gleam in Joe's eye was a good sign that something big was going to happen. I'm Mark Smerling. And this is Morally Indefensible. Chapter 2, The Trial. As your eyeballs roll into the back of your head, notice how your lids... In a fraternity house in Raleigh, North Carolina, writer Joe McGinnis is watching a videotape of a hypnotized Jeffrey McDonald talking about the night his family was murdered. And now, doctor... We're going back in time. It's February 17th, 1970 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And in the darkened theater of your mind, look around and tell me what time it is. It's almost 2 a.m. Where are you located? On the couch. On the night of the murders, Jeff said he was watching TV and fell asleep on the couch. But then he was awakened by the screams of his wife. I hear Colette. What is she saying? Jeff, 
Help me. Jeff also heard his daughter, Kimberly, calling out for him. What's Kimmy saying? Daddy, 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 daddy. I see some people. Three men. I start to get up. What the hell are you people doing in my house? I see this girl between the two white guys. There's a light on her face. She's blonde. She's saying, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Acid is groovy, kill the pig. The black guy has got something in his hands. He's gonna hit me. Two guys are punching me. They're pulling me to the end of the couch. There's a blade. He's trying to stab me. I can't free my arms. My fucking pajama top is wrapped all around. What? Someone hit me with a club. I'm sliding forward. I'm sliding forward. Jeff says he was knocked out. Joe would write about what he saw on this videotape in his book, Fatal Vision. In a voice so distraught, so filled with desperation, he recounted what had happened after he regained consciousness. Giving mouth to mouth to Colette, observing Kimberly in bed, and Kristen. She's my little girl. The emotional impact of the tape was overwhelming. Years later, sitting on the front porch of his house in Wilmington, North Carolina, Joe would describe for journalist Janet Malcolm how he felt about Jeff before the trial. Here's a man who is maintaining his innocence of arguably the worst crime a person can commit, murdering his own family. And if this guy didn't do it, it's terrible what he's gone through. And if he did do it, well, he's terrible. I had had thought that you started out thinking he was innocent. I started out not knowing at all. I started out as a juror would, making the presumption of innocence. In Long Beach, California, Jeffrey McDonald is an emergency room doctor. In the Army, he was a Green Beret. Here in Raleigh, he is on trial for murder. It had taken nine years for the government to indict Jeffrey McDonald after a military court had let him go free. Nine years of newspaper stories and TV segments speculating about what happened to the McDonald family on that horrible rainy night back in 1970. A former army doctor is on trial for the murder of his family. Trial, facing three counts of first-degree murder. Jeffrey McDonald, Green Beret. To some extent, the whole country was watching this trial. Rick Thames was one of the many reporters there to cover the case. He got his first glimpse of McDonald outside the courthouse. McDonald was a charismatic personality, no doubt about it. There was such a mystery about it, too. Are you in some ways hoping that the fact that you're a doctor, that you look, you sound like a doctor, will in fact 
make a, a very strong impression on the jury. Well, I have no control over my appearance. If you talk to people about it on the street, a lot of them would say, I just can't make up my mind, but I can't believe he would do this. There's no evidence against me. There never has been. And this jury's going to find me not guilty. I am innocent. My audience could not get enough of this. At exactly 9.45, Jeff walks through the large wooden doors into the courtroom. He sets his briefcase on the defense table, opens a small pack of green mints, and waits for the prosecution to start. This would be Prosecutor Jim Blackburn's first murder trial. Sure, I was nervous. I see McDonald and all these lawyers and all his friends there. He was a rock star. He was considered that in Raleigh. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a complicated case. Physical evidence is real. Let me assure you that things do not lie. Reporter Rick Thames was in the gallery that day. There was a lot of stuff in the front of the courtroom. The government had collected a mountain of evidence, more than 150 exhibits. And you didn't really understand yet what it all meant. But they assured us in the opening argument that it would make sense by the end of the trial. We believe that the physical evidence points to the fact that one person killed Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen, and that that person is the defendant. Blackburn had his job cut out for him. Jeff was a doctor, a lifesaver, not a killer. And the case was cold. A lot of people would say to us, it's been nine years, why don't you let this go? The lights dimmed as Prosecutor Blackburn flipped the switch on a slide projector. If I show you a photograph of the body of a young daughter, time becomes irrelevant. An image of five-year-old Kimberly McDonald flashed onto the screen. She was the older child, stabbed seven or eight times and hit with a club. She's laying on her side in her bed. The right side of her face is caved in. Then, a picture of two-year-old Kristen McDonald. Younger daughter stabbed over 30 times. Her bed sheets are soaked with blood. Jeff's wife, Colette, lying on the floor of the master bedroom, a bright red halo staining the shag carpet around her head. Stabbed 21 times with an ice pick, hit with a club, both arms crushed, her skull crushed. If I show you a picture of a 26-year-old mom, totally and utterly destroyed, time becomes irrelevant. There was only one way for Blackburn to describe how the McDonald family had been murdered. Overkill. Did we want to enrage the jury? You're darn right we wanted to enrage the jury. Because it was enraging that these people would kill. But then Blackburn showed the jury Jeff's injuries. He has some superficial cuts, a few bruises, and a small, almost surgical incision in his chest that had punctured his lung. Except for the surgical thing on his chest, he didn't even have a Band-Aid on him later on. He didn't have a stitch. How had Jeff sustained so few injuries when the rest of his family had been so brutalized? It's a devastating question because it's exactly what the jury is thinking. For Joe, sitting in the gallery watching all this, that question wore on him. Even years later, talking to Janet Malcolm on his porch, he remembered those pictures. To be exposed firsthand to the 
the graphic evidence, the murder of little girls you know, and this pregnant woman. This was very upsetting. I couldn't reconcile this guy who I had uh, become so well acquainted with with a person capable of having done this to his own wife and children. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. To write the best book he could, Joe McGinnis had to attend every day of Jeffrey McDonald's murder trial. Listen carefully and take notes. And even outside the courthouse, his attention was always on Jeff. He would write about it in his book, Fatal Vision. It began to grow rather unsettling as I rode to and from the courtroom with McDonald. And as I sat up late with him watching Saturday Night Live, It was not the sort of thing one spoke about over the Kappa Alpha dinner table, but he had not been badly hurt in 1970. I had by now seen the pictures of his wife and two children. I'd seen too many pictures, too many times. There were a lot of nights I didn't sleep in Raleigh. And when he couldn't sleep, Joe would sneak down the hall to call his wife, Nancy. He would call up and sort of have whispered conversations with me, and I think he was already starting to get pulled apart by the conflict that was going on inside him. He started to just get more and more scared. Back in the courtroom, the prosecution called Bill Ivory the Army's lead investigator. Ivory had arrived at 544 Castle Drive soon after the military police to find Colette McDonald in the master bedroom. She was laying on her back. She had been badly beaten, and there was a blue piece of cloth that was laying across her abdomen, and we thought that was strange. That cloth was Jeff's torn blue pajama top. Jeff had told investigators that when he discovered his wife, he put his pajama top on her chest to keep her warm, so she wouldn't go into shock. Joe McGinnis was in the courtroom listening to Ivory's testimony. Ivory picked up the pajama top that had been draped across Colette McDonald's chest. He found it was riddled with small cylindrical round holes. He immediately said, we better get someone to the hospital to talk to this man, because anybody who was wearing this pajama top isn't going to survive very long. The pajama top had more than 40 ice pick holes in it. But Ivory found out later that Jeffrey had only one wound. So how did those holes in the pajama top get there? As Colette's body was lifted onto a gurney, Ivory noticed something else, a blue thread from the pajama top dangling from the back of Colette's head. If Jeff hadn't been in the room when Colette was attacked, why was this thread underneath her body? There was a preponderance of fabric threads that matched his pajama shirt all over that bedroom. He claimed that the life and death struggle with four people took place in the living room. The only thing that was found in the shag carpet was a piece of Christmas tinsel. However, 
there were dozens of threads found in the master bedroom. Common sense will tell you that's where the fight took place. His story did not hold up against the physical evidence. And Blackburn had a theory about where Jeff's story came from, an Esquire magazine found on the floor in the living room. I think that the concept of intruders came from that. That magazine had articles in it about hippies and drug culture. We read that in the trial, some of the article. Acid does expand the mind. I believe in powers you can't explain. That's the whole heavy thing about too many people turned on to acid. To most of them, the devil just looks groovier. You get the words like acid and groovy and pigs. Acid is groovy, kill the pigs. And there was another article in that magazine about the Manson murders. McDonald writing the word pig on the headboard was sort of a throwback to the Manson murders, staging a scene to make it look like drug-crazed hippies. McDonald claimed that he was stabbed in the living room. That's not so. The only blood that is found in the living room is a speck of blood on his glasses on the floor and a fingerprint smudge on the Esquire magazine. After four weeks of evidence, Blackburn rested his case. Joe flew home for the weekend to be with his wife, Nancy, and their son. He was very agitated. He couldn't relax. He was just so uptight. Our, our son, Matthew, was maybe six or seven months old, and he was already very attuned to Joe. If Joe was upset, Matthew was upset. And I, I could see it in the baby. He was, he was like physically reflecting what Joe was feeling. Joe still really liked Jeff. I mean, he had kids who were the same ages as Jeff's little girls would have been if they'd lived. He tried to project himself into Jeffrey's situation as a victim, but he couldn't project himself into Jeffrey's situation if he were the perpetrator. It was really hard to decide which one Jeffrey was. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. After four weeks of hearing the prosecution's case, it was time for Jeff's defense. I wanted to do the best job I could possibly do for this man. This is Wade Smith, Jeff's lawyer. His main strategy was to prove that Jeff couldn't have committed the murders because someone else did. And he had an ace up his sleeve, a surprise witness by the name of James Milne. I interviewed him with great care, and this was a truthful man. Back in 1970, Milne was an Army pilot just back from Vietnam. He was Jeff's neighbor. And I remember it was such a vibrant, powerful story. It gave me chills. I'd just come home from Vietnam. Man, I couldn't sleep. 
This is a recreation of Milne's testimony in the court that day. And so sometimes I'd, I'd get up in the night and I'd work on model airplanes. And on this particular night, I heard chanting. And I got up and uh, looked out the door, and there were three people with candles walking by my yard. There's two men and, uh, and a woman with long blonde hair walking towards a McDonald home. You may remember that Jeffrey McDonald described his attackers as three men and a woman wearing a floppy hat. He also told investigators that the woman had a light on her face. Maybe it was a candle. I have no doubt that those people were there. I don't know what they did when they passed through his yard. There's no doubt he told the truth. And there was something else. It turned out that ever since 1970, a local woman named Helena Stokely had been telling people a crazy story. In moments of quietness, she had revealed that she was there and that they had murdered his family. Helena was known to wear a blonde wig and a floppy hat. Maybe she was the woman James Milne saw that night. But there was only one way to know for sure. The judge in the McDonald case had issued a material witness bench warrant for Helena Stokely. This is Frank Mills the FBI agent sent out to find her. They wanted us to take her into custody and get her back up to Raleigh as fast as we could. Mills tracked Elena to a trailer deep in the woods off a country road. It was sitting by itself out in the middle of nowhere. I went in the trailer, and then went down the hallway, and then when I got to the last bedroom, I opened the door. And the female got up alongside of the bed and had a rifle in her hand as she pointed it directly at me. And I said, Helena, drop that gun. And she put it down on the bed. She said, you're, you're lucky. lucky. I tried to buy ammunition for this gun yesterday, but I couldn't buy it. And I said, well, we're probably both lucky then. Helena was brought to the courthouse in Raleigh where the judge allowed the defense to meet with her in private. Finally, Jeff's lawyers were sitting across from the woman they thought could solve the case. Joe McGinnis was there too, and as usual, he was taking notes. Her hair was black. She was many pounds overweight. Her left arm was in a cast that had been broken in Cincinnati. Someone had hit her with a tire iron during a dispute involving narcotics. Elena told Jeff's lawyers she was so high on drugs the night of the murders she couldn't remember a thing. So they showed her photos of the crime scene to help jog her memory. Helena, help us end it. I beg of you. Look at this child's face. For God's sake, smash with a club. Come on, Helena, how much longer will that man have to sit there accused of something so monstrous? She stared at the picture. There was absolutely no change of expression on her face. If I could remember, I would say. It was lunchtime. Helena Stokely had just been given a bologna sandwich. She sat quietly chewing her food 
and slowly turning the pages of the autopsy photo albums as if she were browsing through a movie magazine. The next day, Helena took the stand and said the same thing. She couldn't remember what happened that night. But Joe wasn't watching Helena. He was watching Jeff. This was a big moment for Joe. So big that many years later, he would describe it for Janet Malcolm. I finally found the Selena Stokely, the, the, the witch, the hippie that he said uh, had murdered his wife and kids. And they actually found her. And they brought her in here. And here he is confronted for the first time, you know, since that night with this woman who uh, he says killed his wife and kids. You would expect some kind of human response. There was nothing there. I used to talk to the trees in my backyard at night. Nobody else was out there but me. Prosecutor Jim Blackburn again. I remember sitting on the grass, and I counted up the days that they had been gone, Colette and the two children, the days that they had not had. And I gave my closing argument. I did it until I got teary-eyed myself. And when I got teary-eyed myself, I stopped. My goal, frankly, I am not going to sit down. I'm not going to stop until somebody on the jury cries. Ladies and gentlemen, on the early morning of the 17th of February, time stopped in the McDonald home. We contend that the defendant killed his family because the events overtook themselves too fast. During the trial, Blackburn presented hundreds of pieces of evidence to the jury. Now he was going to weave it all into a story. Early in the morning hours of the 17th of February, Jeff and Collette get into a fight in the master bedroom. I think McDonald goes into a rage and strikes her. His pajama top is torn there during a fight. All these threads fall down. There were dozens of those threads found in the master bedroom. There are massive amounts of blood, which is Colette's blood. It's on the ceiling. It got there, I think, by him hitting her with a club and spraying the blood on the ceiling. I think Kimberly wakes up and hears this fight and goes to see what's going on. And she yells, Daddy, 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 which is what McDonald says he heard her say. I think she did say these things. Right at the entryway to the master bedroom are some drops of blood, type AB blood. It's Kimberly's. She is struck by the club in the hallway. He picks her up and carries her to her bed. And then she's tucked in. Once he's struck Kimberly, it's gone. His career is gone. His family's gone. You cannot unring the bell, no matter how hard you try. According to Blackburn, Jeff realizes what he's done and what he has to do next. Colette's not dead. By some miracle, she is not dead. She gets up. 
and struggles into the bedroom to save her youngest daughter. Blackburn says that Jeff chases his wife into Kristen's room and attacks her with the club. Now two-year-old Kristen is a witness to her mother's murder, and Jeff has a terrible decision to make. He could have let Kristen live. It's true he'd been criminally prosecuted and gone to prison in disgrace, but Kristen would have lived. He chose to kill Kristen to save himself. Jeff heads back to the master bedroom and pulls the sheet off the bed. McDonald puts his wife in a sheet and dumps her really on the floor in the master bedroom over the threads that are there. According to Blackburn, that's why investigators found threads from Jeff's pajama top underneath Colette's body. There were 48 holes in McDonald's blue pajama top. How did those holes get there? He takes his pajama top off and puts it on her chest, not to keep her warm, as he said, but to contaminate that piece of evidence as an explanation of why her blood's on that pajama top. And then stabs her through the pajama top. Now Jeff needs a cover story. Blackburn tells the jury that Jeff sees the Esquire magazine in the living room. He picks it up, leaving a bloody smudge. And inspired by the article describing the Manson murders, Jeff writes the word pig on the headboard. Finally, in the last moments before Jeff picked up the telephone to call for help, Blackburn says he stood in front of a mirror in the bathroom with a scalpel blade. His blood is found in the bathroom sink. Could Jeffrey McDonald, being a doctor, insert a scalpel into his lung, and could he survive? Oh, yes, he could. That's what I believe happened. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish more than you know we weren't here. I, I wish, wish more than you know, than you know that I did not think the evidence pointed to the defendant. If our evidence is correct, and the defendant did it, which we believe he did, think for a moment of the last minutes of Colette, Kimberly, and Crystal. When they realized that they were going to die, and they realized who it was that was going to make them die. That's when the jury cried. That summed up the whole thing. We believe strongly, as strongly as we don't want to believe, that, that he, he did, did it, it, and he is guilty, and I ask you to so fine. Thank you. Talking to Janet Malcolm years later, Joe McGinnis described how he felt waiting for the verdict. Tell me about this nightmarish experience you had of realizing that this man was not a normal person mm -hmm. and your growing conviction that he was guilty. I was so conflicted and torn. This person who you spent these weeks in close proximity to and actually found yourself fond of, could he do this? I'm sitting in a room with McDonald and his lawyer and his secretary. She's on the phone making reservations for him to go to dinner in New York the next night. And then uh, he wants to come to this wilderness photography workshop that a friend of mine is running. And he's, he's well, all this stuff. But the jury is down the hall deciding whether or not he murdered his wife and daughters nine and a half years earlier. And then they actually come, you know, and they, they have a verdict. Reporter Rick Thames was in the court that day. 
people who came back into that courtroom, I think they were all on the edge of their seat. They did not know what was about to happen. They filed in. Some of the jurors looked very sad. I think a couple of jurors were actually tearful. The jury read the first count, murder in the first degree against Colette McDonald. And in unison, they said, Not guilty. I thought, he's going free. But then there was the second option, the second degree murder charge. In unison, they said, Guilty. And that was an amazing moment. There was a cry that went out somewhere in the area of the defense team, and I don't know who it was. Count two, the murder of Kimberly McDonald. Guilty in second. Count three, the murder of Kristen McDonald. Guilty, Guilty in, in the first. The courtroom was stone silent. McDonald gave a quizzical look to the jury, like, did I just hear that? And he was being let out in handcuffs in his three-piece suit. A jury convicted Dr. Jeffrey McDonald for murdering his wife and two children nine years ago. McDonald, a former Green Beret captain, was sentenced to three life terms in prison. Joe called up. He was actually tearful on the phone. I felt terrible when he was convicted. Genuine sorrow. Next week on Morally Indefensible, Joe starts writing his book, and finds a way to get Jeff to tell him his darkest secrets from prison. Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Ryan Swiker, with help from Jesse Rudoy, Julia Patero, Zach Hirsch, Kevin Shepard, and Danielle Elliott. Story editing is by me, Mark Smirling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound designed by Kenny Kusiak and Ryan Swiker. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by the Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Jesse Rudoy, Ryan Swiker, Emma Swiker, Kevin Shepard, and Walker Vreeland. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twig, May Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmull, Diana DeCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavich, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you like this episode of Morally Indefensible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And thanks for listening.